Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with psychologist, social researcher and author Hugh McKay to talk about his book, The Kindness Revolution. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Joel. Great pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the book. Oh, it's so interesting. I really uh, loved reading it. It felt um, like the right thing to be reading at this moment in time. Um, you you were saying, well, we, we just signed a whole bunch of books. Um, you were saying while we were signing that you wrote it primarily during the during the pandemic lockdown. Mm. Is that uh, is that right? Yes. Yeah, the whole draft was written um, really in just over six months, uh, starting in April of 2020. It's the fastest book I've ever written. And that's partly because the lockdown was like a gift from the gods for a writer. Uh, no distractions, no meetings, nowhere to go, what else to do but get on with it. But it also flowed because this book is a kind of wrap-up. I mean, it's two things. It's ultra-contemporary in the sense that it's locked in the moment of 2020, the bushfires, uh, the pandemic, and what impact that had on our society. But it also reflects on 50 years of research and the main themes of my work, which all, it seems to me, were... Uh, I was reminded really of, of, of big themes in my research that were amplified by the experience of 2020, like the vital importance of communities to our mental health, uh, like the vital importance of maintaining personal relationships and not letting them be swamped by information technology. I mean, they were swamped by information <laughs> technology in 2020, which was brilliant, and, and people who've been uttering cautions about uh, the inroads of IT, like me, mm. had to stop and think, well, hang on, in a crisis, this is brilliant. But, of course, it's brilliant in a crisis, but it was no... We, one of the things the pandemic taught us was this was no substitute for actual eye contact. I mean, the difference between what you and I are doing now mm. and what it would be like if we were doing this via Zoom is incalculable. Apart from anything else, we'd be in two dimensions uh, and it's only mock eye contact, it's not real eye contact. So the, the pandemic reminded us of all, of all of that. And also, I think it was such a disruption to our way of life, to our normal routines, that when people started thinking about life post-pandemic, notice how the cliché became the new normal. They didn't mean we want to go back to normal. We want to go back to a new normal. And I think that that's in fact led to one of the core themes of the book, that we don't want to go back to the way it was because what we learned from that, which we always learn from a crisis, whether it's fires or floods or famines or pandemics or a personal crisis like a life-threatening illness or a relationship breakdown, uh, what we learn is what matters to us, what's really important, what do we value. And so the message of this book is, during the pandemic, we realised all over again uh, that, that we can live differently in a way that's more respectful of each other, kinder to each other, making personal sacrifices for the common good. Why stop when the crisis stops? Why couldn't we become that kind of society? Why, why couldn't we take these lessons that we've learned all over again? We learn them every time there's a crisis. Why couldn't we internalise these lessons 
and become that kind of society, live like that. Mm. I think that's it's such a beautiful sentiment and I, I, um, I do think there was a period in the lockdown where there was a certain common feeling, certainly amongst people who were locked down. I think, I think obviously it's not like with anything, it's never evenly distributed. Yes. Um, there are lots of people who are, you know, frontline workers and um, working in healthcare and who, who were living through utter terror, mm. I guess. Um, I think it's really interesting that you paired these two words in the title, the kindness revolution. Mm. What part of it do you think is a revolution? I think the revolution will be, and it's, it's a hopeful title, I don't think the right. revolution has happened. Uh, I'm asking people to join the revolution. The revolution will be when we do acknowledge that kindness, which we are very good at. I mean, it's an innate human quality. What a remarkable species we are, Joel. I mean, we are capable of showing kindness to total strangers. You see some poor old bloke trying to cross the road, a lot of traffic is obviously bewildered, you just help him. You have no idea who he is. You don't care if he thanks you or not. It's just something we do for each other. That's the human thing. Now, that sometimes gets gets lost in the rush of busyness and all sorts of ego drives that distract us from our core quality as kind, compassionate, cooperative members of a social species. A species like ours can't survive unless we act like that. So the revolution is when we acknowledge that that's true, we observe in ourselves that we're capable of living like that, and we decide that that's how we're going to live. We're not going to go back to being so busy that we haven't got time to stop and chat to a neighbour who just needs a friendly listening ear. Uh, We're not going to be always planning the next trip as a way of escaping from... Uh, the the realities of the here and now, we're not going to overlook the neighbours who are socially isolated or frail or in some other way in need of a bit of support. We're going to remember that that we noticed all those things during this tough period. We're going to remember how grateful we were to those healthcare workers who couldn't be locked down, had to get out, to those supermarket Uh, food supply people who have to keep going to work for us, Mm. to the people who still collected the garbage and the cops who still were on patrol. I mean, they couldn't stay home. Their their act of love was going out and exposing themselves to risk. Uh, Let's not forget that. Let's, Let's remember that there are heroes in our midst that we admire in a crisis and we'd better remember them when the crisis has passed. Mm. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I I think you do a great job of of making the case for that. One of the things I thought was very interesting is, which you've sort of touched on, is this idea of kindness and cooperate, you know, cooperation being an innate human trait that, you know, you know, there's a center in our brains that um, connects to, to this sort of behavior in humans, but we're not necessarily innately competitive. Mm, and I thought right. that was a really interesting way of balancing those two things. And I'd never heard anyone sort of frame it that way. So mm. I thought if you could expand mm. on that, that was really Yes, well, the, neuro- the neuroscientists, of course, now are peeping into our brains in ways that psychologists and psychiatrists in the past could only imagine. And so they can identify bits of the brain that are related to bits of behaviour. And there is, it turns out, a cooperative centre in the brain that... It, 
we, we are actually wired to cooperate. There is no com- competitive centre in the brain. We learn to compete because there are circumstances in which we do have to compete. We might be people competing for the affections of the same potential partner or competing for a job or we compete on the sporting field. Traditionally, we competed for food and territory and so on. And in some ways, we still do. Um, but that's stuff we, we learn. The deep truth about us is not about uh, our competitive behaviour. The deep truth about us is about our cooperative nature. And there's a, there's a little implication that flows from that that I think has very great contemporary significance, which is that at the moment we're, we're living through the period of so-called identity politics. We're all obsessed with identity, whether it's gender uh, or ethnicity or religious identity or professional identity, whatever it is, we're all, we're all caught up in this idea of, our, of my identity, my uniqueness, how I'm special and different. Emphasis on the different. Identity is all about our differences. Identity is all about our independence. But go beneath that and the deeper truth about us is that we are all one, that we share a common humanity, that, that what is most significant about members of this species is their interdependence, not their independence. We love talking about our identities and that's how we tell each other apart. You know, How is Joel different from Hugh? Well, there are lots of things we could put on the list about your identity and my identity, but what's the big thing to celebrate? The big thing is you and I are both humans and we'll treat each other well even if we're poles apart on politics, religion, culture, writing, whatever it might be, something deeper than that that keeps the species alive is that we acknowledge our common humanity. I say in the book, we all exist in a shimmering, vibrating web of interconnectedness. And when we forget that and think it's all about how I'm special and different, we're actually diminishing our own humanity. That feels it's it's very inspirational, and I um, I I think at core believe it, but I think it's so hard to overcome the sort of fundamental cynicism and alienation that we get fed oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> on a daily basis. And I think it you've had a lot of experience writing books like this, where you have um, urged people to care about their local communities, and how how do you overcome that? Um, the accusation of sentimentality, I guess, mm. when it comes to writing about things that are fundamentally true but that we tend to get cynical about. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's very unfashionable, yeah. particularly in the circles <laughs> I move in and probably you move yeah. in. It's very unfashionable to talk about kindness, for yeah. example. Uh, and it's actually quite fashionable to pose as a cynic. But I've got an entire chapter in this book attacking cynicism yeah. uh, and acknowledging that sentimentality has its place. I mean, sentimental has become a pejorative term. Oh, that's just sentiment. Uh, Well, what is sentimentality? It's an expression of pure human emotion. It's an emotional response to something that almost bypasses the rational. Well, we fall for this myth that we're rational creatures, that humans are essentially rational, and the world would be a better place if we could all be more rational. I think that's rubbish. Uh, We can learn to be rational and we have to be rational if we're crossing the road and not getting run over or building a bridge that won't fall over. Um, But in our personal relationships, 
in most of what we do, in most of the so-called decisions we make, and uh, most of them turn out not to be decisions but just things that evolve, we are much more ruled by the heart than the head. Uh, we do things that in retrospect seem even to us to be wildly irrational. Why did you marry that person? Why did you have that many kids? Why did you live there? Why do you do this job? Why did you vote that way? Well, don't ask me. I mean, it just happened and, and I, that's how I felt at the time and I can't give you the six dot points that will explain this uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that will satisfy rational argument. So let's not be embarrassed about sentiment and even the occasional brush with sentimentality, the hallmark greeting card sentiment. I mean, I, get, I, I cringe a lot of the time in the face of what I think of as sentimentality, but I also acknowledge it's an absolutely authentic human response to some situations. So, and, and when it comes to kindness and the kindness revolution, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the pairing of those two words. Kindness sounds like the soft bit. Revolution sounds mm. like the tough bit. And, and that, of course, is true. What I'm saying is let's remember what kind of people we are by nature, kind, respectful, inclusive, tolerant, cooperative, though all those things can be corrupted. That's who we are. So let's embrace that in spite of the temptations to do other things. That, that would be revolutionary resistance to the ego and to the claims of wildly uh, absurd rationality. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. I think the section on cynicism was really interesting to me because I think that's sort of default position of a lot of, um, you know, talking heads and pundits that, that somehow affect a sort of uh, edgy cynicism as if that's the only way to be interesting. Yes. Uh, and I think I've never liked that particularly, um, but, it's, but it is hard to avoid. <laughs> mm. Well, I think there's a distinction that's important to make, and I make it in the book, between cynicism and scepticism. I think being healthily sceptical about everything that you're not sure of is very appropriate to be sceptically questioning about what a politician says or what someone else says about anything that you're unsure of. Yeah, retain your healthy scepticism, but let, let it slop over into cynicism, which is a destructive, anti-kindness, anti-loving kind of sentiment, not giving people room to move. You're sort of closing the door, whereas scepticism is leaving the door open and saying, let's... Let's work this through. I'm not sure about this. I'm not convinced, but I'm at least open. Mm. I, th I think that's really a, a really important distinction. You're not you're not sort of naively telling people they they have to embrace kindness and be nice to everyone, no matter what. No, and don't, no, uh, it, <coughs> a really important point, Joel. In fact, I use a quote from Samuel Johnson. I by no means support everything Samuel Johnson <laughs> said or did, but I think he said a really wise thing when he said, "Kindness is in our power." even when fondness is not. In yeah. other words, this is this lovely thing about humans. We are capable of being kind to people we don't like, not just people we don't know, but people we actively don't like and could never agree with. Uh, it, it's the, hum it's, it's the noble, noblest expression of humanity to be able to be kind when you don't like someone. 
like to neighbours. You know, there might be neighbours in your street that you have nothing in common with, you're not attracted to, there's no feeling of affection, no emotional link at all, yet kindness is the appropriate way to make a street work. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think in some ways it's the purest expression of kindness when there is no ulterior motive. You really are just doing it because it's the thing you do. That's right. That's Uh, that's really interesting. Um, The section where you talk about um, apologies and forgiveness, I thought was really central to this this your conception of kindness mm. um, and really was I just thought it was fascinating it's sort of I think you call it a vaccination against cynicism yes. uh, being able to apologize and forgive mm. <laughs> can you tell us a bit yes about yes that's part it comes to a chapter it occurs in a chapter in the book which, which I think of really as the centerpiece of the book which is the chapter called uh, everyone's deepest need is to be heard um, uh, I wrote a book some years ago called What Makes Us Tick, uh, in which I identified uh, what struck me as being the 10 uh, social desires that absolutely drive us and that explain why we do what we do. And top of that list is the desire to be taken seriously. Whatever else we might want out of life, the one thing we do want is to be noticed, appreciated, acknowledged, understood, listened to, etc. So listening, if, if I had to identify the one skill we need to sharpen in order to be kinder people, that would be listening. Let's get better at empathic listening, at really absorbing what people are saying to us because then we're conveying the unspoken message to them that we take them seriously enough to listen to them. And, of course, if we don't listen or if we just pretend to listen and mock listening is very easy to detect, (laughs) we are sending the unspoken message that I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening to you. Now, who'd want to say that to a partner or a child or a colleague or a neighbour? And yet we do say it or we imply it whenever we don't listen. Now, forgiveness and apologies uh, are all part of the same deal and they they occur in in that same chapter. Uh, because one of the uh, one of the kindest things we ever do for people, and one of the things that assures them more than anything that we take them seriously, is when we apologise, when we acknowledge that we've hurt them or offended them in some way, and we want to let them know that we acknowledge mm. it through apology. The people who go through life saying never apologise, as though it's some kind of sign of weakness, I think, have not understood what it means to be human. Yeah. Uh, Of course we apologise if we've done something wrong. And then uh, there's a beautiful symmetry here. If we apologise, what we then most desperately want ourselves is the forgiveness of the person that we have wronged. So we, the therapeutic act uh, that we perform for them is apology Uh, the therapy that they offer us is forgiveness Mm. and being apologized to but withholding forgiveness is a really rough way to operate it seems like uh, such a cruel thing to do to someone why would we be that cruel (laughs) and on a large scale uh, this is a very challenging idea i mean for example in the case of australia's first people um 
we've been talking endlessly about apologies because we know there are so many shameful deeds, not just done in the past but done in the present, for which an apology is appropriate. We don't ever talk about whether we'll be forgiven for those things. Mm. And it sounds uh, like a very big call, like saying uh, to someone who's been the, the victim of physical abuse uh, and the abuser apologises, will you be able to find it in your heart to forgive? Well, there are some beautiful, spectacular examples uh, on, on the world stage, like Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for, what, 30 years or something and forgave his uh, captors. Uh, and there are people who've been raped, who've forgiven the rapist. There are people who've been cheated and wronged and abused and everything who found it in their hearts to forgive. Uh, and that's a beautiful uh, expression of humanity. It's also a way of ensuring that you're no longer a victim. Because until you forgive the wrongdoer, you remain that person's victim. Yeah, they hold the the, the act holds some power over you still. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. I find it very. Uh, I think just for interpersonal sort of relationships, it's mm. it seems to be at the centre of a lot of you know long term relationships communication. Yes. And there's um, so much tension, exa exactly, even within families over people's unwillingness to apologise mm. or unwillingness to forgive. Yeah. And that's part of the bigger problem of unwillingness to listen. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I loved the stuff you, you know, I, I, I we can't keep talking I, as much as I would love to, but the, the, the mind cage, oh, right. the I loved that idea of um, having to use the metaphor of a, a cage around your mind that you can't see out of, you can't see the whole world mm. clearly yes. from inside. Uh, and the act of listening is to sort of try essentially line up. And, and it's the only way of, of um, expanding the cage or mm. making it more flexible. Mm. Uh, and that the, the act of listening itself is sort of um, the risk you take is to, uh, you risk changing, changing your mind. Yes, uh, that that line really hit me. That yes. sense of like, okay, if you actually listen, you might risk being persuaded. Yes, <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that hit you, Joel. <laughs> it is one of the core sentences in the book because if we're not running the risk of being changed by what we hear, then we're not listening. Mm. Because listening, as you've said, is is opening ourselves, entertaining the ideas of another person. And we're not entitled to reject them until we've entertained them. We're not entitled even to react to what someone has said unless we've fully absorbed what they've said. And that does involve this, this thing that we're all naturally resistant to, which is running the risk of having to change our minds. What a terrible thing to have to change <laughs> our minds when we've spent all this time coming to the position that we're at. Why would we want to change? We all resist that kind of change. And yet, daily, that's the challenge if we're going to be more empathic listeners. Absolutely. Well, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this book. It's fascinating, but also people should read it because I think... Yes, <laughs> yes, let's not give away the yeah, punchline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you'll learn so much from reading this book and um, hopefully it will inspire to be a kinder, kinder better human in the world. Um, Hugh, thanks so much for joining me. Um, really fascinating to talk to you. And this is our 500th Booktopia uh, author interview, which is 
great history, a yes. moment of history for us as well. Uh, thank you very much, Joel. I'm, I'm honoured to be that particular milestone. <laughs> thank you so much. And you can buy The Kindness Revolution by Hugh McKay from uh, booktopia.com.au or your local bookstore. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au